Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Search for Growth. In this episode, we are interviewing Pallavi Kupaapte, who's the CEO of ChargeHound, a chargeback automation tool acquired by PayPal in 2021. ChargeHound actually started from a YC company called Beacon. Beacon was a platform that connects journalists with readers to fund stories directly, which Pallavi joined in 2016. In this episode, we'll chat about how Beacon pivoted, how ChargeHound came to be, and its growth through its exit to PayPal in 2021. Thanks for joining us today, Pavi. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for inviting me, both of you. Yeah. Alfie's also here, obviously. Um, so I think to start, just tell us, how'd you get intro to Beacon? What made you join? What was the state of the company? For sure, yeah. It was a very 2015 in San Francisco story. I had just moved to SF to join a different company. I was about a year out of college and just meeting a ton of people in the Bay and someone that I met at a party, one of my first weeks in San Francisco, introduced me to, to the Beacon co-founders. And it was a networking, you guys would like each other kind of intro since I had just started a job somewhere else. But I thought they were super smart and I thought what they were building was really interesting. And so it very quickly became more of a job conversation. And I joined them just about six months after I had moved out to SF. Whoa. It's very quick. What, and where, at what stage was Beacon when you joined? Beacon had raised a seed in series A, I think, and they had been around for a few years. I think they were like YC... 2013, and they were trying to find a new model for funding journalism because 2016 was not a banner year for journalism or the years prior. So they were looking for a new model for, you know, interesting and relevant journalism to be funded that was not necessarily through advertising. And so that's what they were working on. It was a crowdfunding model when I joined. Nice. Uh, and what position were you working as? I think I joined as a, I actually have no idea what my title was. I think I was a, I don't know, maybe I was like a operations yeah. person. <laughs> I honestly don't even know what my title was. It was very irrelevant to what I was doing. The team was only, I think I was like the seventh person or eighth or something. I joined Beacon, so it was very irrelevant to what I was actually doing, which was startup, all hands on deck yep. thing. So you joined Beacon. How long into joining Beacon did you realize, or the founders realize that Beacon wasn't the end state of this company? Yeah, so the founders made the decision to pivot about maybe, honestly, it was pretty quick, like maybe a, a month or two after I joined. So it was pretty quick and it happened very quickly. So we were, we were basically a team of five that pivoted. There was a, there were three co-founders and then one co-founder stayed through the pivot to help us get on our feet. And that was definitely, I think like really instrumental for the team. And then he moved on to other things and there were a core team of five of us that kind of took charge on from there. During that pivot, were you ever, I should go do something else? For sure. I was, again, like really early in my career. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I hadn't really signed up necessarily for a fintech startup that was basically starting in a lot of ways from scratch. And I didn't know if it was going to work out, but I also didn't want to look for a job. So yeah, yeah. I thought I would see what happened. I also, I really liked the team. We had a really strong team. I liked them a lot more than any other team I had ever worked on. I thought they were really smart. I thought I just wasn't done working with them. So I wanted to see how it played out. And also at that point in your career, you have basically no reason not to take a risk like that. And that was why I moved out to SF in the first place. It wasn't that deep of a calculation. It was like, I'm here. I like the team. I'm interested in the product. I'm interested to see if it could work. And I also really don't want to start a job search. Yeah. Quick question on the, on the product itself. How would you describe it in context of other 
I don't know, like newsletter or journalist platforms like Substack and things like this? How would you contextualize it for the audience? <laughs> I guess as someone who is only really at Beacon for the last two months, I don't know that I could give you a fair history of the product because yeah. I think that they really tried a lot of different models that some of the similar companies that you're talking about are continue to try today. So I think in a lot of ways, Beacon's timing was not right. I think that there are a lot of companies today that are trying to do something similar to what Beacon did. When I joined Beacon, it was crowdfunding. So it was like a Patreon would be a good comparison to what Beacon was trying to do, but solely focused on journalism. But I know that they had tried a subscription model similar to some of the stuff that Medium had done afterward. Beacon did that first, I think. So in some ways, it was just a little early. But in other ways, I think, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if there would have been a way to keep going with that product at the time. Yeah, super interesting. So you arrived and there was like very quick pivoting into what Char Chow became. So that you came right in the eye of the storm as this pivot was happening, which must have been super interesting as like a particular yeah. moment to join a company. For sure. I definitely came in order to help run a new project that they were working on for the company. And they brought me in and also it's an opportunistic hire, I think, because they met me and it was a good fit. And I think that's one thing that it can be really important to do in a startup is to make some hires opportunistically because having the right team, I think, is like one of the most important things you can do, if not the most important. Yeah, it was an interesting time to come in. <laughs> but I think I was in the perfect place to be there for a pivot because I was just excited to get my hands on something. So tell us about how like closing down Beacon, you've had all the experiences of starting basically from scratch, getting acquired, but also having a company have to wind down the company as well. What was that like? Winding yeah, down I think for me, like from my perspective, it was a very sudden change to have to make because I had planned and visualized one thing and then we were making this pivot. And I think one thing that the co-founders were very good about was once the decision was made to pivot, that was the priority and everything else could be dropped. That was the only thing to focus on because it's life or death of the company moment. And that was what was definitely the hardest slash biggest learning experience for me at the time, because I think when you look at a lot of job descriptions for startups and things like that. They always say, be ready to move on to the next thing or be able be ready to change direction really quickly. But you're never going to have to change direction that quickly at most established companies. But for us, it really was, we were looking one way one day and we were completely looking a different way the next day. And that was definitely the hardest thing to do because I had all this stuff that I was working on for um, Beacon and I needed to learn how to just drop it and move on. And I think everyone had to do that. And in a lot of ways, it was probably harder for the people that had been there longer, but it was definitely a, a brand new experience for me. Were investors on board with a pivot? Yeah. I think, I think if your company isn't going to be able to scale and provide returns in one iteration, it's better that they pivot and be successful in another. Yeah. So were there ever talks of just shutting down completely or like how did the idea of ChargeHound come to be? Um, so ChargeHound existed within the Beacon tech stack. Beacon, like I said, was a crowdfunding platform and crowdfunding sees a lot of chargebacks. And for anyone not familiar with chargebacks, right? They're a part of the credit card processing workflow in which a consumer can dispute a charge that they paid for on their credit card. And that money is taken back from the merchant. And the merchant then needs to fight with documentation and evidence that they submit to the banks in order to win that money back. And chargebacks can occur for a ton of different reasons. It could be that the return policy of the merchant is really difficult and you just decide to dispute it instead. It could be because you really didn't get the thing that you paid for. 
It could be because you're a chargeback fraudster and this is what you do. It could be because someone committed real fraud on your credit card and you are disputing that charge because you actually didn't make it. There can be a lot of reasons for a chargeback, but it's a huge problem and it's a for merchants and it's a really big part of the crowdfunding ecosystem and crowdfunding payments because if you think about it, if you are contributing to a Kickstarter campaign, you put down 50 bucks and they tell you if this campaign gets funded and we, there's all these things, right? And you might wait three months before the product that you contributed to on Kickstarter ends up getting shipped to you. And then in the end, people can change their minds. They can decide they don't want that product. They can just get bored. They can forget that they ordered that product in the first place when they see it on their credit card statement. They might be confused thinking they were going to get it right away. Like crowdfunding is a very ripe ecosystem for chargebacks. And so crowdfunding platforms and Beacon included saw a lot of them, but of the 50 bucks or whatever that you put down, like the crowdfunding platform is only taking a portion of that. But when the chargeback happens, they're losing the entire transaction. So maybe they were only going to make 10 bucks, but they're losing 50. So it's a triple whammy in that way. Could you explain that? How does that, how does that work? Sorry. So if I'm a crowdfunding merchant, I am probably going to be like the merchant of record for the transactions that take place. Right. So when I pay $50 as the consumer to the crowdfunding platform, that crowdfunding platform is processing $50. Then they might be paying out $40 to the person like selling on the crowdfunding platform. But if the $50 gets charged back, that $50 comes out of the merchant's bank account or the crowdfunding platform's bank account. Totally and so then they can make a decision about whether they want to pass that cost on mm. to their users, like their sellers or whatever. But that's a decision that happens after the chargeback takes place. Like that money's coming out of their bank account. So this is probably, is this quite similar in a, in a retail example? I don't know, Amazon or any other e-commerce site, if you send a product and then for whatever reason, it doesn't arrive, but you've shipped the product. So not only are you actually paying the amount back it, from the chargeback, but you also lost the product because you yeah. don't know where it is as well. So it's like a double, either way, it's like a double whammy, unless there's like a legitimate, fully legitimate dispute, basically. Yeah, that's right. I think industry estimates are that the true cost of a chargeback to the merchant is 3x the value of that item or purchase. That's shipping cost of the product itself, processing costs, all of those things. It all adds up so that for every chargeback you're actually incurring, your true cost is three times that. So Beacon, like any crowdfunding platform or any online business really was getting chargebacks ourselves, but we're a small team and chargebacks, one of the worst things about them is that fighting them from the merchant side when you do it manually is super time consuming and that's just too costly to do for many teams. And so we, and by we had a product team, looked at that and was like, we're just not doing this manually. And our CTO was obsessed with automation. And so he automated the process or Beacon. And so when the co-founders were looking for somewhere to pivot, they found this in our tech stack and saw it as a viable business. Nice. So how did, so you have this component of your tech stack that works that Beacon's obviously found useful. How do you get your first customers? So our first customers were YC Batchmates. Those were our very first customers that we launched with. Yeah. So the YC network definitely came in handy that way. Nice. And how, and are there specific pro types of profiles? Were they also crowdfunding companies or was it e-commerce or what? Our first real customer was a crowdfunding company or our first kind of big one, but our earliest ones were not, they were a mix. There was some physical e-commerce, some digital e-com. There might've been one small crowdfunding platform in that early batch, but it was who we reached out to that was, yep. and the market is really any business processing online credit card payments can use Chargeound. So. Was there a specific size of company or a type of company that particularly loved using Chargeound? We definitely focused on enterprise. That's always been our focus. 
since the beginning is just thinking of companies that are operating at a massive scale, your chargeback scale with your transaction volume. So, you know, now you're not talking about getting 100 or 200 chargebacks a month. You're talking about thousands, millions worth of dollars a month getting disputed. And so as you go up in transaction volume, it becomes a very real revenue issue that touches a lot of different orgs within a company. Is there some heuristic like X percent of transactions get charged back? Yeah, like one industry estimate is up to a percent. It's usually around like half to a percent of all transactions are being disputed. Well, that's interesting because if you said that the cost, if the estimated cost is also like 3x, that's 3% cost. Yeah, it's a huge issue. That's not, isn't that, what? that's like even more than fraud, isn't it? I feel uh, like fraud is like in the lower, it's in like basis points as opposed to like whole percentage points. Yeah, I think, so fraud and chargebacks can be linked. Some of your chargebacks can be due to true fraud. What we found though, and what we built towards was that up to 70% of any given merchant's chargebacks are not caused by true fraud. They're actually winnable and they're caused by what's called friendly fraud, or it can be also merchant error. What we found was a huge chunk of that, call it percent of transactions that are being disputed are actually winnable. And if you have a scalable and effective process to fight them, that doesn't cost more than fighting them, right? The issue is that when you're doing this manually or you outsource it, it can actually just be more expensive to fight your chargebacks than to win them. So if you can fight them in a scalable, effective, and cost-efficient way, then you're looking at winning back a huge amount of revenue and really shoring up the bottom line. It's super interesting that the way you talk about it is really helpful in understanding how you think of like segmentation and who you go after, who'd be the right customer. Because as Chris was saying, technically there's a ton of different types of companies that are going to experience chargebacks. That could be the pain, but is the consequence of that pain really that worthwhile? As you said, if there's large amount of transactions, that could be a significant amount of money with little effort to reclaim that back. How did you, in terms of the distribution question, so you started within the YC portfolio, it's always interesting. I, I, it's kind of like mixed opinions about having the portfolio companies try products because if you're selling into tech companies and that's in portfolio and that's great because it's a similar maybe ICP, but for some other companies that might not be the case, maybe very easy to get meetings, but maybe the product market fit feedback is not actually the best. How did you think about um, segmenting the market and saying, okay, you, you mentioned enterprises, okay, just purely volume of transactions, but is there also another aspect which you would subsect that market and say, okay, we're going to go after this particular type of company because it's more worthwhile. There's enterprise B2B companies, but I'm sure that there's probably lower numbers of chargebacks on a B2B payment versus maybe like a retail payment, for example. Yeah. So I would say ChargeHound, as it was at the point of acquisition, was definitely had a pretty broad customer base across B2B, B2C types of products, industries, and then also size within a certain segment, right? Not everything was huge enterprise because we also were able to target larger companies as we grew and became more established. But as we grew to that point, we definitely did think about some of the things that you're saying. Consumer companies definitely are the most logical place to focus in the beginning because that is where typically you're going to see the highest transaction volumes and the most confusion about credit card purchases. So that was definitely our first, first early and biggest customers, all consumer focused. I think it's interesting what you said about tech companies or companies that are very tech forward or tech friendly. One thing about chargebacks is it is a very legacy industry. So when we entered the market, a lot of our competitors were extremely manual or outsourced solutions, and we were fully focused on automation. And we had no interest in there being a manual component to chargeback processing. And that's a really different way for people to think about what is both a very niche, but also an extremely widespread and impactful problem. And so we encountered a lot of fear around automating a process that had always been manual. 
and our earliest champions were people that really grasped that technology was the perfect solution for a problem like this rather than something that was scary. And so finding those champions, finding people, and they weren't always at, they weren't always people that had come up in the tech industry, but they were people that were really excited about changing the way they were looking at this problem. And they were people that were really able to recognize why investing in technology was a long-term solution, even though it would mean they would need to get buy-in within their own organizations. So I think finding those types of champions was the most crucial thing that we could do as we targeted larger and larger customers. So a, a couple of interesting things. One, can you define friendly fraud? For sure, yeah. So friendly fraud is basically any instance in which someone files a chargeback, a consumer files a chargeback, but the merchant didn't do anything wrong. The merchant fulfilled the terms of their service or the product that they were providing, but for a myriad of reasons, the consumer has still filed a chargeback. So that can be things like you just got the wrong size of shoe when you ordered it, but you just don't mm. feel like going through the returns process. You can charge it back. That's friendly fraud. You could have not liked your Uber ride, but you didn't get a refund, even though you didn't satisfy the refund policy. You can charge it back. A big thing is that people don't recognize when they look on their credit card, they don't recognize the descriptor. And so they say, mm. oh, I didn't buy that. I'll charge it back. And it's really easy to file a charge back. It's like a button in the credit card interface. Do you get pinged or for or hit on your credit at all for charge, charging things back? No. I imagine uh, the credit cards have some sort of wall where if you're really charging back a ton, yeah. maybe. But the real loser when it comes to chargebacks is the merchant. Not yeah. credit card companies. They, the merchants, is, is there like a typical reaction? Like you mentioned, obviously, there's a manual process if you want to actually go and fight it. I imagine there's just quite a lot of people that don't even bother because, like you said, it's not even worth the cost of doing that. That's, that, that must just be it's almost like a line item of a sunk cost on, on the profit and loss, right? Yeah, that's right. Actually, a surprising number of companies don't do anything about it at all. And companies that are a lot bigger, not just companies that are small and it's not the focus, Companies that are even much larger look at it and say it's a sunk cost. And it's definitely surprising. But also when you look at what it takes to fight chargebacks with in-house manually or what with what was on the market before ChargeHound, you do understand why they just not want to touch them at all. Did you find that had an impact on the kind of conversion rate in the sales process? Because if someone's already become numb to a pain and almost doesn't see it as a pain or they've succumbed to putting it as a loss on as a line item, I would imagine that the reaction is I'll do something about it only if it's super easy and I just have to install something and it's a no brainer. I've not used your product personally, so I don't know how much of a no brainer, super easy solution it is, but did that kind of play a big part in who would actually be bothered to go and, and take this out or was it? pretty easy to convince people. Yeah, it's funny that you call it, say, a no-brainer because one of our early customer testimonials was ChargeHound is a no-brainer. So that was definitely one, one approach to explaining to people how easy this would be. Our product is easy to use, but it does require a small amount of engineering resources. It's a very simple and easy API integration. We've seen a single engineer complete it in less than two days. Um, in terms of the scale of the project, it's not huge, but of course every team, and especially when you're looking at these enterprise companies, nothing is that simple. So it does require some engineering lift, but the returns are so above and beyond what that lift would be that in our sale, we really would focus on the ROI of what we were of the product. Of course, if a company is not touching their chargebacks at all, that ROI is pretty simple to put together uh, because you're basically going from losing all of your money to winning it back. So that's a pretty straightforward approach. That said, no enterprise sale is straightforward. Blockers come up in unexpected places. So we definitely saw, we would see some of the same things sale to sale, and we started understanding how to segment those out and how to address those all the usual ones, filters, by yeah. engineering, resources, all of those. 
did you ever get to the point where you're like hey i'll just give you some of our engineers and we'll do it we'll do the installation for you just so they get over that hump no because you are touching right like credit card transactions we really prioritize security and compliance we were SOC 2 type 2 and pci compliant and that was something that was important to us so also it could have potentially created more blockers to offer like paired integrations or to give them our engineers also we were a small team we didn't have that many engineers it was <laughs> so that's not the easiest thing to do yeah. also does it help to just send someone in and then now you've got someone outside your company looking at your company database? I don't know. Yeah. Was SOC 2 something? Beacon probably didn't need a SOC 2. No. But pretty immediately, was it clear that you needed to be SOC 2 compliant? It was a priority for us. And because we were focused on enterprise, it was a yeah. key differentiator. And it was also just really important to us because our team really cared about security and compliance. And so... That was just a priority for us as well. But it was pretty clear that in order to sell to the sort of customers we were looking to sell to, it would be a key differentiator and it would make the sale a lot more successful. Did you find it easier to sell to people that already had a solution in place so they actually knew that there was this pain point, but doing it in a less efficient way or to the people that were leaving a ton of money on the table and had no solution in place? Yeah, honestly both ways had their own pros and cons. So, you know, when someone's leaving all the money on the table, sometimes you're trying to explain to them why it's a problem and why they should start doing something. And then sometimes a knee-jerk reaction is, we'll just build it versus, mm. which has never worked. And those customers <laughs> always came back to us a year later. But with someone that has a solution in place, now you're displacing a process that exists. So they recognize it's a problem and they're ready to outsource it or to use the vendor, but now you're convincing them that you are the right vendor. So we did a lot of pilots. We did a lot of bake-offs. We never lost one. So nice. we, we adapted to what was present, what we were presented with. But I think ultimately, if you have a product that works and is so the value proposition is so tied to real cash flow, and you are ROI focused then that's what really worked for us. And ultimately, like the product worked really well. It's a simple product, but it solved a pain point completely. So I think that always helps. How did you determine pricing? We're performance-based and that worked again really well for us because there's no CapEx or OpEx for the customer. And we stuck with that pricing throughout. Nice. So oh, something just happened. Those first customers, you started with YC, they, how did you get your first enterprise customers? Was that step um, Yeah, it was like we grew by step functions. So it's like we'd close one and then we'd be like, okay, what's a company that's five times bigger than this? Let's go close that one. So that was the approach we took to pretty much everything. And that was a framework that our CEO was very, that's something that I learned from him and was key to our company's DNA. So it was just that. It was like, okay, we did this. Now what's something that's way bigger? Let's go do that. And that's how we thought about our sales motion too. Was that all from like outbound, like cold emails, cold yeah. calling? Outbound networks too. Also, as we became more established, we knew more people in the industry and that helped. And people started recognizing our brand and that helped. But yeah, outbound, it was pretty early on we made the decision to focus on like an outbound enterprise selling strategy. And we kept going with that rather than more of an inbound or like self-service option. So I remember a story. You went to a conference and brought puppies. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about where that came from. How'd that work? Yeah, that was Meredith. So that was after we had hired our marketing, our first and only marketing person. And we'd gone to some conferences before and they'd worked pretty well for us. And every conference was an adventure. The first one, we, I had never been to a fraud or like fintech conference period. And I did not know that people spend like a hundred, 200,000 on these trade show booths. And so I went in thinking a fold out table and like a banner and we'll be good. 
and some flyers. And I got there the day before and it was these like crazy booths, like crazy. I, yeah. And now it seems obvious, like anyone that's been to a conference knows this, but yeah. So we, I went into panic mode and it was this whole thing. And I built this like massive balloon wall with all these balloons from party city, but party city had run out of air pumps. So I had to like blow up all the balloons and then I made this like big balloon ball and then, or a balloon wall and then begged the conference coordinators for carpet, even though I hadn't pre-ordered and it was this whole thing. And every conference at first was very bootstrapped in that way. And then as we grew, we did hire a marketing person and she was able to actually dedicate time and resources to conferences. And one of the conferences that she organized, one of the first ones that she organized, she had the great idea to partner with a local dog shelter and they brought puppies to our booth and our booth was mobbed. It was crazy. It was awesome. And How did that correlate into interest in the product? <laughs> it was a card not present. I think it was that, or it was like MRC or something. It was a risk conference. Okay. So the people that were there were our buyers. And when the puppies came, like the people working at the other booths came too, because no one was at their booths. So they just came to see why and found out that it was because there were like 10 puppies in our booth. And yeah, that was a huge lead collection event for us. Yeah, because I guess that makes sense. If you're in a really highly qualified conference where most of the people in there are going to be your ideal buyer persona, then all you, need, all you do need to do is get attention in, into there, isn't it? What's, what I was going to ask, with the conferences and the sizes, I was thinking about your products and depending on the size of the company, if some people, again, going back to that kind of idea, if some people just accept it as a loss. In some companies, they might not have someone who's fully focused around fraud or these chargebacks. The kind of people that would go to a fraud kind of conference would they be strict fraud teams in large enterprises? Because you've got to get to a fairly large size of an enterprise to even warrant having someone dedicated purely to fraud or chargebacks in accounts receivables. Yeah, I do think that fraud and risk is a growing industry. And I do think that, especially with the acceleration of digital payments, these teams are becoming more and more common. And even smaller companies, not tiny, but maybe mid-market would have at least one person that if they weren't dedicated to fraud, was at least thinking about it. One thing that we did find though, was that front end fraud, like preventing fraud is a much more, it's a very, there's a ton of products in that industry. And it's a very, in terms of branding, I think it's a much more well-known problem, right? And can, understand that people, that there are fraudsters on the internet and that they are, have schemes and that they hack or like attack companies that are selling things online. And, and that's also at the top of that transaction funnel because it's happening at the point where a payment is being made, whereas a chargeback can happen up to a year after the yeah. payment has been made. And so it's all the way at the bottom of that funnel. So if you're like working through your problems, a lot of people get stuck up here in fraud, which is absolutely an important thing to think about. But again, chargebacks are a huge line item. So I think what we found where there were a lot of buyers for front-end fraud, and we did need to do a lot of education around chargebacks, friendly fraud, and why it deserved the same level of focus. Are you fighting 100% of chargebacks? Yeah, so our recommendation to most merchants is that they should fight all of their chargebacks. Yeah. Um, the only way to understand if a chargeback was true fraud or friendly fraud in a lot of cases is by fighting them because that mm -hmm. is your feedback, right? If you just get a chargeback, you don't know if it's friendly right. fraud, if it's winnable. Yeah. There's no way to know that unless you fight it. Uh, and now once you're fighting 100% of your chargebacks, especially if you are an, a large enterprise, now you have a feedback loop that you can actually even feed into your decisioning on the front end about fraud, because now you have indicators. And so we always recommended to our customers that they fight 100%. Not everyone was always ready to fight 100%, but 
99% of the time, a customer would come in, they might say, not ready to fight 100%, maybe I'll start with 50. And within the first six months, they'd be fighting 100% because they'd grow to trust the product and they'd start to see the value. So you would have some like lever in your system that could say, fight 50%, fight 90%, fight 100%. Effectively, yeah. Cool. Let's switch a little bit. Like when did ChargeHound know that an acquisition was a good exit strategy? I think that from the beginning, it always made sense that we'd sit inside of a larger payment processor. That value prop was always pretty clear to us. So I think that was always something that intuitively seemed right. When did we realize it's now? I don't know if you ever totally realize that because you don't know if you're going to be able to make it happen and if you're going to be able to get the outcome that you want until you've done it. So I think COVID was a huge factor in a lot of ways, right? Like digital payments absolutely exploded. Many consumer companies, their online sales and their chargebacks also exploded. And so our company grew. We had already been growing three to five X every year, but we really took off in COVID and the value prop and the spotlight on chargebacks really came to the forefront in a way that I think it would have over time, but it, COVID was obviously a real shock to the system and to the online payments ecosystem. And so I think it, the environment was right for us to look for a good outcome. And luckily that did work out. I'm going to ask you a bunch more questions. What was that process like? Was it the company decided we want to get acquired, so we're going to go and look for an acquirer? Was it a case of you had acquisition proposals over time and then this seemed like a right time to actually consider it? You know, what is that? I'm sure that looks different for different people, but what did that look like for you? Yeah, I think over time, parties had expressed an interest to various degrees. I think you don't want to put yourself on the market because there's a air of yeah. desperation to that. And we were definitely in a really great position and we had a lot of leverage because we were growing so much and our roadmap to more growth was extremely clear. We could have, I think that was also, that was an option that we definitely could have pursued. It wasn't like we needed to get acquired. So that's often the best time to think about it. And so with that in mind, we started just having more conversations with, we were already partnered with a lot of payment processors, right? Because our product needed to be integrated to payment processors in order to service merchants. So a lot of those relationships were built really organically over the years. And we had a lot of really great relationships with people at other vendors in the space, with payment processors, just with generally players in the ecosystem that we built over the years. And then those conversations evolve and eventually you make a call if you want to really kick off that process. And obviously we did. What's the kind of timeline of a, an acquisition process like that? Because there's obviously some kind of courting that takes place, initial yeah. outreach, then there's the meetings, then there's, oh, we actually want to acquire you. And then there's makes an offer and then there's the legal. So what does that actually look like? Yeah. Like from the very beginning seeds and stuff to the very, everything's signed and it's done. I guess maybe it could have been like six to eight or nine months, really in the thick of it, four or five. Yeah. So but, it's not a short process. Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking that sounds short, but actually, in, in especially in the startup world, it's quite a long period of time. I guess it's, it must change as well in terms of the type of due diligence that they need to do. And if it's a clear product hire, is it an aqua hire and so forth? That's really interesting. And so you've had a really interesting story from Beacon to pivoting to creating a new company and then seeing that hit product market fit and then to being acquired. I guess in your role as CEO, how have you experienced now problems that maybe you might think this might be a good company to start? Are there any things that in your day-to-day -day that you're experiencing a bit like how you came across the chargebacks that you think that's a good company, someone should start that? Yeah, literally all the time. Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'll, I charge for that. Uh, but no, actually all the time, because I do think that in it, it's like the best way to get a good idea 
is having experienced the problem yourself because it gives you that strong understanding of what the solution would be and gives you a place to start rather than thinking further afield to things that you might not know as much about. Although I have friends that are starting companies that way and they're brilliant and will do a great job with that as well. But I think for me, having come up the way that I have and been able to have a business succeed the way that Chargehound did, it is super appealing to me to be able to see problems. And it's often those like nitty gritty, almost just like ugly, boring problems that you don't really want to. One of the big things about Chargehound was we built an extremely good product and an extremely good technology product in a space where technologists did not want to think about it because chargebacks are both boring and extremely complex and they're just not that much fun on the surface or generally they're not like that fun. It's not like a sexy problem to think about, but it is perfect for automation and it's perfect for the type of product that we built and no other technology founders at the time were trying to build that. So I think that's something that I always am trying to look around for is other things where, you know, no one wants to build it. No one wants to think about it, but it's actually an incredibly strong value prop and there could be an extremely strong product around it. I also just always think about things that are annoying (laughs) to do like (laughs) manually. And I'm always like, could that be automated? So I always think about things like, I don't know. There's so many other areas of payment processing, honestly. There's so many areas in risk and fraud. There's so many areas. And I always think of like sales, like when we end hiring, Although I know a lot of people are thinking about those things because a lot of people endure a lot of those pain points, but yeah, there are, I think there are a lot of things where I'm always like, Hmm, we'll see. Is hiring harder in for a company like Chargehound because it's not dealing with a sexy problem? I would say you definitely get a different candidate pool because of that, right? It's not necessarily people that are I guess you get both. You get people that are really experts in and passionate about fraud and payment processing and chargebacks because they understand that chargebacks are, as much as they're not a hot topic, they're, they are an interesting problem to solve. And so you do get people like that, that have been in the industry and are interested. And then you also get people who are, I don't really care about the product, like what exactly the product is doing. I just want to join a strong business. And both of those are totally viable candidate pools, but you're not getting, it's, you're not getting like a, I want to change the face of the planet sort of candidate. That's not, they're not like super starry eyed. And actually when we were hiring, we always somehow hired people that had like bad job experiences or like jobs they didn't like in the past. And Hmm. it just felt like those were the people that saw our team and were like, you guys don't have a lot of bullshit and you're pretty pragmatic. And that really appealed to people was just that we were not what I think a lot of like typical startup teams were like, just because we'd all been, we were all over it and we were like, we have goals and here's what we want to do, but we're not going to pretend like it's rainbows and butterflies all the way or something. So so talking about some of those challenges, what do you think the most challenging part of Chargehound was? Like, was there a specific day where you're like, that was the hardest day? I think the most challenge, there were lots of there were lots of like most challenging parts. I think a cool thing about running a startup is that every problem, at least for me, every problem was new. I'd never done it before. So it was like everything we had to do was the hardest thing I had to do until the next thing. And once I figured out that first hard thing, that thing was never hard again. So it was like the first time we onboarded a real customer 
that was so hard, but then it was, that was never hard again until the customer that was 10 X that, or the first time yeah. we had to hire, it was so hard, but then you figure that out and it's not hard again. So I think those were always, it was the first, it was that, it was the step function moments, right? Where you're just, you're out of your own league, but you're trying to figure it out. And there are people relying on you to figure it out. And there's no plan B, like there's no like person that could step in for me. I think those are always, you probably agree with this or have experienced this. Those are always the hardest parts where you just, you've never done it before. You don't know how to do it, but you also can't fail because people are relying on you and your company is depending on it. Yeah. Well, this has been so fascinating to get a deep dive into chargebacks and your story. We have a couple of rapid fire questions, but before we go into that, Alfie, is there anything that you want to ask? I think I'll have to take some take some stuff offline and talk to you more about the uh, the fraud and payments industry. I, I work at Spendesk, which is a fintech oh, and that's right. yeah. corporate cards, expense management, and that sort of yeah. stuff. And we deal with some of these sort of problems as well. And uh, there is a whole industry, I think, just to delve into specifically on that. Totally. Yeah, I'll probably take that offline. And uh... Yeah, I'm happy to chat. <laughs> Alpha, you want to do the rapid fire ones? Sure. Let's get them up on my screen here. Okay. So they're pretty simple and there's only three of them. So the first one is, what is your favorite book? And that can be any book. Oh, that is such a hard question. Uh, my favorite book of all time. God. I have loved so many books over the years. Okay, some of the standouts to me that are coming to mind right now are When Breath Becomes Air, most people Good have heard one. of this book. It was incredible. I cried all the way through it, but I just thought it was an incredible reflection on what it means to be a person. And more recently, I read Empire of Pain. These are not uplifting recommendations. <laughs> yeah. but... There's a theme here, isn't there? <laughs> yeah. But... A career in fraud is going to be a, <laughs> a sadomasochistic book in dark places. <laughs> but it is just an incredible and just like generation spanning account of the painkiller epidemic and it just broadened my scope like it, it made me just think about how many other issues are like hot button issues today but actually span back so far and touch so many different areas of what we live in today and that, that you don't know about and so it just made me want it was one of those things that made me want to find 10 more books like it it's an incredible book not uplifting and then another one that I think is great for anyone that has ever experienced burnout is How to Do Nothing. That's a great book. And I read it right after we got acquired because I was burnout. Yeah. And it was fantastic. So I recommend that one as well. I feel like there's a lot of people at the moment that probably benefit from reading this book after the last couple of years and ups Definitely. and downs in the tech industry. Yeah. Okay. So what would be your favorite business book or maybe something that you'd recommend or something that you would wish that you would have read earlier in your own career? Yeah, I would say I'm definitely not. I don't gravitate towards reading a lot of business books in general as I like darker fare, but there are two books that I did read that I, a lot of times I just start reading them and I just feel like it's not useful to like, I read them very reactively. I'm like, I'm having this problem and I want to figure it out rather than like in general, I'm interested, but two books. So I sometimes will just drop it part way. Cause I'm just like, this isn't helping with the problem that I'm facing this week. But two books that I read that were immediately impactful were making of a manager. I freaked out when I had to like the first time I just had to hire people to be on my team. I was very stressed about being an effective manager. I recommend that book to new managers. And then also The Messy Middle is a great book and just talks, it was like, actually spoke to a lot of the challenges that I was trying to figure out. And it's just about those, you know, there's a lot of people talk about right when you start up or like when you're exploding or whatever, but this book in the title is about just those middle parts where it's just the grind. And I thought that was really helpful. Those awkward teenage years when you're growing pains and your joints don't quite fit yeah. yet. Yeah, <laughs> or even the teenage weeks where you're like, I did that thing and I need to do this thing and I just don't know how to get from A to B. 
So, yeah. And then finally, to wrap up the rapid fire, what is a piece of advice in your industry that you don't think is true? Yeah, I mean, that you need to handle chargebacks manually. <laughs> so, so specific. But I do think in general, just the sense that for all problems, it's better to have a human element. I, I think that is true for some problems, and it can even be true for parts of some problems. But I think that there are so many processes like chargebacks where if you invest in technology and you fully automate them and you stop clinging to an older way or a more analog way of doing it, you're actually going to unlock more things that you can do, right? Like the people who automated their chargebacks, they were able to focus on other things that were more impactful to their businesses. And so I think it's not, I think people see it as like eliminating something or handing something out into to a robot. But I do think that for a lot of things, it can actually, it's a force multiplier. So it actually lets you do more and do stuff that you can't hand off to a robot for now. Although we're trending in a <laughs> robot direction. Yes, we are. Chat GPT is uh, <laughs> taking the world by storm. All right. Thank you so much for today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I'm going to digest a bunch of stuff. And again, we'll have to follow up on a bunch of these topics. For sure. So for our audience, where's the best place to find you? And if, have you got anything to plug? And if so, this is the time to do it. No, I will. I'll. Yeah, I don't have anything to plug today. The best place to find me is probably LinkedIn. And I would say if anyone is starting up or has started up and has some of these problems to think through, I'm always happy to chat and see if I can help out because I've taken a run or two at a lot of the complexities in starting a business and I can, I'm always happy to talk about it. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> and then for the rest of us, you can find our podcast, thesearchforgrowth.com and find us on LinkedIn. We'll have all these links on LinkedIn. Also, I have a newsletter called Content I Consumed and Alfie has his Rocket GTM and consulting work as well, which you can find, as I said, in the show notes. See you next week, everyone. Ciao.